Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria's newest film, VFW. Roses are red and so is blood. From director Joe Bigos comes Fangoria's newest movie, VFW. Tell me this doesn't sound good. A group of war veterans must defend their local VFW post and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of mutant punks. Starring everyone you've ever seen in an 80s action movie. Stephen Lang, Martin Cove, William Sadler, Fred Williams. Williamson, George Went, and David Patrick Kelly in select theaters and streaming on demand this Valentine's Day. Don't miss VFW. Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria.com. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long form pieces, deep dives, daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vaults, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will forever be print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Fangoria.com. Good evening, all of you Panic Fest parishioners, and especially all of you Scantron psychos out there. Uh, for those that may not know, my name is Greg. I uh, co-host the Nightmare Junkhead podcast, and it is my or one listener. That is our pl- my pleasure to welcome you all to an event that is going to both entertain and educate. Please welcome to Panic Fest for the first time. She wears many hats, including filmmaker, podcaster, and professor. Welcome to Panic Film Festival, Dr. Rebecca McHenry. Thank you guys so much for coming today. This is awesome. This has been super fun. Um, so I, I'm sorry, we're, um, they just brought us barbecue right before we started. So we're both kind of like, oh, we just ate a lot of barbecue, but it was really good. Um, so thank you guys for coming today. So we are going to be talking about micro-budget filmmaking. Um, And this is going to be part of my normal podcast that I do for Fangoria and Nightmare University. Um, And usually I will pick kind of niche parts of the horror industry. I will talk about time travel horrors. By the way, that episode's coming up in a couple of weeks with Justin um, and Aaron, who have um, Synchronic playing here this weekend. Um, Or I will talk about video nasties um, with David from Severin. It's very kind of specific parts of the industry. Um, This one's a little bit different because I'm talking about a contemporary trend that I don't usually do. Usually it's kind of more of a retrospective show. But this one is one that I have come to know very, very well, Um, and as has the guest that I will be bringing on shortly, A.J. Bowen, um, who has produced them, acted in them, worked on them, everything. And so um, micro-budgets, I knew were a thing, but I got out to Hollywood, and I had this kind of idea of what a filmmaker does. And I was like, "You, you sell a film, you make a film, and then you are like cutting Coke lines with your black Amex in the black of your Ferrari, and there's not much in between there. Um, And what I quickly discovered is that the industry, that was kind of my 80s ideal of how filmmaking works. It does not work like that anymore. Now, um, most filmmakers start out in micro budgets. Many 
many of us do. And so we're going to talk a little bit about why that is, what they are, and why it has shifted. And then a lot of this is going to be kind of a make-your-own-damn-movie lecture, stilling that from Lloyd Kaufman. Um, the whole idea that when no one else is there to hand you millions upon millions of dollars to go make your movie, you just find a fucking way to do it. Like, you just see what you can cobble together and do it. And looking at a lot of kind of case studies of filmmakers who have done this, of filmmakers who just find a way that say, I don't care whether the industry is ready for me to be here or not, I am, and I'm going to make something. Um, so I'll begin with one of my favorite quotes. Nothing will stop you from being creative so effectively as the fear of making a mistake. And this is by John Cleese. Um, and this is what I always consider to be the hurdle for a lot of filmmakers, that if they are forced to do something on a super, super tiny budget, that it's immediately going to be um, this fear of, can I function in this budget? What if something goes wrong? Um, you know, if I'm putting in my own money into it, what if I just completely fuck up and then I don't have my savings anymore? And it is this fear that will stop people people every single time. And I find that that's kind of the very first hurdle that people have to co cover. It's not even so much finding the money as much as it is kind of overcoming your own fear of just tackling the whole thing dead on yourself. So let's start with what is a micro-budget film. Traditionally, a low-budget film is considered anything below 2.5 million. And that's insane. And before I came to Hollywood, I was like, how can that even be a thing? What A million dollars is like unfathomable for me. It still is. And so the idea of a film costing a million, let alone 80 million or 120 million, I just can't even fathom it. But then you actually get on set and you realize how quickly money goes. Um, you realize that like on a million dollar film, you probably have a crew of about 40 people who are working round the clock full time for usually anywhere from about, I would say 20 minimum, if we include a little bit of post-production to about 40 days. And these people all need to be paid because they're there all the time. And then because you're usually on sets for 12 hours plus, you're feeding them three meals a day. You're paying for locations. Insurance is a huge thing. All of your actors have to be paid as well. You need everything that you see on screen, all of your props, your costumes, your set everything like that. And depending on what the film is, insurance will keep climbing. If you're using SAG actors, you have to pay SAG insurance as well. They want to insure all the actors additionally to make sure that you are in fact paying them. So a million dollars actually goes really, really quickly. So low budget is traditionally anything below 2.5 million. A micro budget is still a controversial thing. Um, I was at AFM last year and I heard somebody say in a lecture that um, the industry standard for a micro budget is anything below 400,000. But I've also heard 500,000, I've heard 300,000. Um, but it ultimately comes down to like, can you make a film that is this low? Um, 300,000, I'd say a lot more films fall into that category now than, than the ones that I consider micro budget. Usually if I'm thinking micro budget, I would think about 200,000 or less, but it gets a little higher depending on where you are. So with micro budgets, the distribution model is a little bit different than it's going to be for traditional films. You're not having um, a company like Warner or Universal come in and be like, here's your five million, go make the movie, and then we're going to put it out. Usually you are making it on your own and then trying to find someone to buy it from you to distribute. And so it's very much this kind of indie model of I'm doing it on my own and now I have to go keep going with it. It's a lot more work. 
Um, can studio films be micro budget? Sure. They're usually picked up after the fact, something like paranormal activity, um, or other films where, um, your next is one, um, where the film is made. And then as they are hitting festival circuit, the studio will go, Hey, that was pretty good. Even if it is low budget, we could probably pick this up and do something grandiose with it. And thus they do. So that can have studio micro budgets, but usually a studio would not approach a 60,000 thousand dollar movie to begin with they would in some way try to find it bigger and blow it up and put giant stars in it so the history of micro budgets micro budget films have always been a part of our landscape um, since the dawn of film there's always been a group of people who are kind of like I'm gonna do this myself a lot of times they fall into what we now look back and consider the exploitation filmmaking. Um, even as you're looking in the 1930s, again in the 70s, um, it, it, a lot of them fall into kind of like the quick exploitation fare. Doesn't mean they're not good. I based my PhD on exploitation cinema. I fucking love it. But that said, that's where a lot of the micro-budget stuff falls. Um, it surged in the 70s and 80s because we had two things really booming during that time. We had this kind of um, the grindhouse cinema, the, the secondary cinema, these second-run theaters that were taking in anything. And then in the 1980s, we had the VHS market booming. And so we had these distribution models of places that you could put micro-budget cinema and people would still watch it and rent it with gusto. Um, Night of the Living Dead was definitely one of the landmark ones. In 1968, although this is questionably not even a micro-budget, um, it was 114000 at the time, which if you translate to today is around 800000 So questionably micro-budget, but regardless, it was still done on a shoestring budget and was still able to completely reshape the way that the industry was headed, reshape our understanding of zombie, reshape kind of the way that social um, controversies were being presented within horror, all within one at least low-budget film. Um, Phantasm was another one at 300K, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer at 110K, Last House on the Left definitely at 87K, and Halloween almost at 325,000. So some of the major titles that we have really seen explode in the world of micro-budget cinema, so much so that many of these were picked up by major studios and then given much bigger releases. Paranormal Activity was made for $15,000, Eraserhead for $10,000, Blair Witch for $60,000, Primer for $7,000, and Open Water for $130,000. All just really good examples of, of what micro-budget is. And if you look through this list, what you quickly discover that every single one of these films has in common is basically one location and less than four actors. And that tends to be the best formula for making things micro-budget, which we're going to talk more about in a sec. But the big question is, why are we seeing this massive boom of micro-budget horror now? It has increased so much, even more so than we were seeing in the 1980s. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is the advent of consumer-grade filmmaking tools. I bet every single person in this studio could shoot something right now with stuff they have in their own pockets. Half of you guys could probably even edit it as well. And we have now reached this point in technology where things like digital cameras, editing software now come super cheap, even standard on some computers. 
Um, even getting up into nicer grade cameras that and, and sound equipment, it is something that we are all have access to and most people can get pretty cheaply. And so because of that, it's really kind of broke down this kind of filmmaker wall. It, back in the days of 35 millimeter, it was kind of this, oh, well, it's on film. It's, it's hard to achieve. And now that we can all just go to Target and pick up equipment, it's definitely kind of broken it down and made it so that everyone could shoot something if they wanted to. We've also kind of entered into this acceptance of low budget. Paranormal activity definitely helped with this, but just within the past two decades, we've reached a point where we are kind of okay with watching things with slightly degraded video or things that we can kind of see the shoestring on. Most people, especially horror fans, are kind of like, if it's a good film, I'll watch it. I don't care if I can see what the budget is or if I can see, you know, that I wish they could have pulled that effect further or shown me a little bit more of what the monster looks like. If it's a good film, horror fans are willing to go through and stick with it. Um, same thing with found footage. A lot of the found footage stuff that was coming out was micro budget. And fans were willing. Like, even if you could kind of see the, the boundaries of the budget, horror fans were like, there's something there and I will stick with it. So we've developed an acceptance of it. We've also had an increase of our viewing options, and with that, we've had kind of an acceptance of internet viewing. Um, we watch stuff on YouTube all the time now. We have gotten used to kind of grainier, lesser quality stuff. Even if you're not watching it on YouTube, we're seeing it in news footage, we're seeing stuff online all the time, and we've kind of become accustomed to that aesthetic. So when that aesthetic is echoed in our films, it's not as big of a shock as it would have been in decades prior where everything was kind of studio classic filmmaking. We've also seen a lot of success in horror markets and sales within the past two decades, and a general sharp decline in budgets across the board. And this one is where we get into what I consider to be the root, the biggest thing that caused the rise of the micro-budget film. And this is that we have film budgets kind of dropping across the board. So why is this happening? One of the biggest reasons is the loss of physical media. So up until about 10 years ago, if I was a filmmaker, I would make a film and I would go make a whole bunch of DVD copies of my film. And that might cost me two bucks a piece to make those. And I am now going to come to you and you are going to give me $18 for this. And thus I have net $16 on that single copy of my film. How much do we pay to rent stuff on Amazon? Two bucks, maybe three. Netflix, I have no idea. I pay $7 a month and I just keep getting content. It feels weird, but I just keep getting content. The model for how money coming in and back towards the filmmakers has completely changed. And on the viewer side of it, I love it. I can watch movies for two bucks on my couch now. But on the budgeting side, the death of physical media definitely dinged Hollywood. Not the giant studios, they're doing fine, but it dinged the smaller independent studios. And so that definitely caused some budgets to drop. VOD markets have also changed the entire landscape. Everyone's still trying to figure out how to turn a profit in the VOD world. Right now, there was a stretch where it was, okay, we've got our big ones, we've got Hulu, we've got Amazon, we've got Netflix, we're just gonna feed all of our content through there. But even just what we've seen in the past two years is people then going, well, how come they get to make all the money? I'm taking all my shit back, and I'm going over here, and I'm putting it on my channel, and now we've got Disney Plus and CBS and all of these, Peacock, um, and all of these different channels trying to do that. So no one has really yet figured out how to make 
a strong profit off VOD or where it's going to head. So there's still kind of this fumbling around with that, and no one's willing to take really big risks on potentially risky indie movies. So we're still seeing lower things there. There's more distributors. There's more distribution options. And because of this, we have seen budgets from especially horror films drop and then kind of stay there. And then also there's the idea that people have been doing it well. If you can see a whole bunch of filmmakers in Blumhouse is at the top of this list, if you can make really good, successful horror films for under $2 million, why would people give you more? These people over here are doing it great. So we've kind of hurt ourselves in that regard where they were like, we're not going to give you $10 million. You get two. Oh, well, I still made a really good movie for that. Well, then here's another two. It didn't kind of go back up past that. And I mean, and we, we are. The industry has been doing it. We have been turning out top-notch projects for lower budgets. And so that tends to be where it falls. And we are starting to see some increases. When you look at things like hereditary, it follows. These ones are definitely starting to eke out of the low budget range, getting up in kind of the $5 million range. So we're seeing slight increases, but even still, the majority of the stuff that you are going to see even here at this festival is going to be smaller stuff made by independent filmmakers who feel like if they do not make something that their heart is going to explode. And so it explodes up on screen. And it's beautiful. So the recent micro-budget boom, some fantastic examples, and every single one of these is absolutely um, amazing films. Resolution, um, you're about to see their uh, fourth their, their new film, Synchronic, here. Um, the Battery, and this is one I definitely want to talk with AJ about because the way this was a $6,000 film. The Battery is a perfect case study um, made by Jeremy Gardner, whose film After Midnight is playing here. Um, he was, at the time, I think he still is, a bartender in Florida who was that type of, if I do not make a film, my heart is going to explode. And so he made The Battery for $6,000, and it is fucking awesome. And it definitely kind of did a couple of festivals, and the way that I found out about it was AJ, when you came, I think you told me about it at Jump Cut one afternoon, but and then you came on Shockwaves and talked about it, and it was just, or Killer POV, it was that long ago, um, but it was just this beautiful kind of growing and swelling and sharing amongst fans of, oh my God, have you seen the battery? It's so good. And that got Jeremy a couple other projects in his most recent one, After Midnight is Here. Um, Starry Eyes um, from Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Cloche was um, just a little over 500,000. Um, Taking of Deborah Logan, I could not find numbers on, but that definitely, just from watching it, I feel would qualify, but that got Dennis Robitaille's career going. Um, Be My Cat was just 10,000. They look like people I couldn't find numbers on, but that's another one that you can watch. I think it's on Netflix right now. Um, That's definitely super low budget, but packs a really good punch. Um, Eyes of My Mother, 250. And then those last three, um, Hell House LLC, Honeymoon, and The Wind, I could not find numbers on, but they're all kind of in that micro-budget ilk. So we're making amazing stuff in this. We, as horror lovers, have found a way to tell stories even under the tightest of restrictions. Um, But ultimately, these decreased budgets have really kind of shaped the entire industry, even in larger projects as well. It's in a way kind of become our aesthetic. So even if you think it's something that has a slightly higher budget, something like Get Out, how many locations does Get Out have? One. You see his apartment for a few minutes, and then there's a driving scene, and then we are there. 
How many primary casts does Get Out have? Maybe five? So six, maybe. There's a party scene at one point. We are still kind of seeing this aesthetic come through. The Purge. How many locations in the first Purge? One cast of six, seven. couple people outside the door we see briefly. And so what has been happening with the Blumhouse model is they do these lower budget films. And then you can look at something like The Purge where the first one made a ton of money and then they, as the sequels came in, they kept blowing up the world. They kept making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but these kind of things that we started doing to accommodate micro-budget stuff like paranormal activity, two people, one location. Um, Blair Witch Project, if we include the woods as one location, Three people, one location. These kind of tricks that we've been using for a long time and are still using today, we're now seeing bleed into much bigger films as well. Even scope. Think back to the 1980s. Think back to some of your horror, favorite horror films of the 1980s. We went places in the 1980s. We would go to space. We'd go to other dimensions. We would go into weird voids and crazy creatures would come out. And that's just what we did. Even in smaller cinema, like even looking at some of the Frank Henenlotter stuff from the 1980s, we're still all over the place with weird shit happening and crazy creatures and those films move. We don't do that anymore. We find a location and we stay there and we, we have small contained stuff. So even if we are looking at things with larger budgets like Hereditary and The Witch, they still feel very contained and definitely in like these kind of centralized locations with a few amounts of cast. And so these are kind of have been reshaped by these micro budgets. These micro budgets that we were seeing out of necessity have really kind of fueled the way that a lot of our horror has gone in the past decade. And so ultimately the question becomes, why would you want to make a micro budget? I can tell you right now, it's a pain in the ass. It is. Um, so when I got the chance to make my first feature, um, All the Creatures Were Stirring a couple of years ago, it started out as a completely different project. And we were looking at a much larger budget. And then as happens, money is hard to find. And it kept going, well, could you do it for this much? Well, could you do it for this much? How about this much? And before we knew, it was a micro budget. And there's nothing wrong with that because there was still something there. And then it became, can you work within these boundaries? And then it's very much, yes, how do we work within these boundaries? So the question is not necessarily, why would you want to make one? You'd want to make one because, as I mentioned, your heart's going to explode. There is literally a piece of metal stuck in your brain that if you do not gouge out and splat all over a screen, it's going to drive you bonkers. And so you do it. Um, but the reasons to kind of be willing to work within the micro-budget structure... No one is going to give you $25 million. And that is the sad fact that I learned about Hollywood really quickly, is I just had these, these beautiful starry-eyed dreams of, I'm just going to roll into town and hand the people my second draft of this kind of okay script, and they're just going to hand me that check for $25 million. And it does not work that way in any capacity. And so there was never going to be a perfect storm. And in many instances, there isn't. And I was waited for that for a long time, this idea of, Somebody is going to show up and give me $25 million, and then um, suddenly Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be like, I will do your crappy little tiny horror film. Sure, I will. And then I'm going to get like this awesome band that I love to do the soundtrack, and holy shit, I can use this crazy cool location. It's just going to be this perfect storm of filmmaking, and it's probably never going to happen. Even, you know, on giant Marvel films, that's not the way that films get made. And so knowing that there's never going to be this perfect storm of filmmaking, it really does become kind of a now or never. 
how can you cobble together enough to make something? Um, and what I quickly also learned is the, I have no experience. By this time, I had made five or six shorts and maybe five heavy metal videos. And I was like, I know how to work a camera. Means nothing. And what I kept hearing from people was um, when I would shop features around, they'd be like, this is really cool. Come back after you've made your first feature. And I was like, but you're supposed to be my first feature. And it never worked like that. So it was always about make something and then show it to us. And short films did not count as much. And so it took making something for a pittance to be able to keep pushing. There's also the, I have no contacts. I have no agent. I have no experience. Go micro budget. Um, and this is a big one. My idea is not trendy, marketable, and understandable. So those three things are what drive the industry. Is this something I can make money off of? Is this something that I can put in every theater, in every mall across America, and every person from age 16 to 60 is going to have to see this on opening night? And if it does not fit into that category, it's hard to get people to give you money. So when you come at people and are like, I want to make a really weird, like, small horror that's just people sitting around talking about their problems and then a monster shows up it's a much harder sell. And um, so it's always about understanding that that doesn't mean it's bad. I love those movies. Those are my favorite type. But it's understanding that they may not be profitable to other people and that it's a harder sell. And then you're willing to make a micro budget. You're willing to do it yourself. Um, I want more control. And I wait for no one. And that is the biggest thing that I love about micro-budget cinema is what it says for me is I could probably sit on this project for another three years trying to find six million, but you know what? I'm gonna make it for 6,000 right now because I wait for no one. And I love that element of micro-budget cinema. So what are the potential hurdles of making a film? How do you even approach a micro-budget? If you are able to cobble together $6,000 from doing lift after work or pulling from this account to put it over here or begging somebody that you know and you can come up with a couple of grand, how do you even approach finding a micro-budget project? Well, you start by looking at what the biggest hurdles of making a regular film are. What are the most expensive elements? Um, and so when you look at kind of what the primary hurdles of filmmaking are, money is a constant. I mean, finding good crews, writing a good script, finding locations, but overall, the biggest problem with filmmaking is always just finding money. So stop looking and just go with what you can find. So there's never gonna be a perfect storm. You will have a script, you will have money, massive distribution, a location crew, an amazing high-profile cast. It may never happen, so why wait for it? Write something to what you have already. And so to write this, you need to start thinking about what the most expensive elements of a film are. What can be altered? What, if I have this amazing story, what can be altered to push something down into the micro-budget level that I could shoot it for a couple of grand? Um, locations are always expensive. So as I mentioned, a lot of the things that fall into micro-budget are primarily one location. If you look at After Midnight today, it is primarily one location. It's beautiful and they shot the shit out of it, but it's very controlled in the amount of locations that it's using. Cast and crew size. It's expensive to have people on your set because most of the time you want to pay them. We want to be appreciative of the people who are helping us out. And so it's all about trying to find 
ways to kind of shrink down your cast size, to work within small restraints, which is why a lot of micro budgets basically will have just two or three people. And the cast and the crew on those are going to be equally small. I just interviewed um, Jordan Downey, who was the director of Headhunter. Did you guys see Headhunter this year? If not, you definitely need to check it out. It is incredible. He shot that film um, for super, super micro budget. I think he said maybe $30,000. And his crew was like four people. Um, And so it's just being knowing that it might take a little bit longer to set everything up when you only have four people, but being willing to work within that and finding people who can wear many, many hats. Um, Paying your cast scale, which sucks as an actor, as we can talk with AJ about, but it is a way to kind of cut the costs and and keep everybody on a level paying field. Um, Insurance. So insurance is not optional in filmmaking. And if I ever approached a project that told me they weren't getting insurance, I would be like, y'all are making a huge fucking mistake. Um, Insurance is crucial. But your insurance will go up depending on what you're doing a lot of the time and where you're shooting. If you are shooting like on the edge of a bridge and it goes down, your insurance goes up. I shot in a canyon and they charged me more because it was a flood zone. Um, So even just kind of taking a pyrotechnics will bump up your insurance a little bit. So even just keeping that in mind as you look at your shooting insurance. Um, Shooting days and script length. There's a big price difference between shooting an 87-page script and a 130-page script. Massive price difference. So you want to push to the shorter range, usually, with micro-budgets. Special effects. I always think when you're doing micro-budgets, you get one piece of really good production design. Like one thing that you're like, okay, this is it. We're really going to sink all of our money into this. I just saw Sea Fever last night, um, which was amazing. And you could tell that they sunk their budget. It was basically six people, one boat. Um, and you could tell that they put the majority of their money, their production value, into the creature that they created. They created this absolutely phenomenal, beautiful creature. Um, so you kind of have to figure out, like, what is the thing that you were going to spend what money you have on? Is it going to be special effects? Kids! Kids are crazy expensive to work with in films, at least here in the States, um, because they come with various restrictions of how much they can work depending on their age. So what is usually a 12-hour day can become a six-hour day. And so a lot of times you wouldn't necessarily include kids unless you're budgeting in for that. Um, So the most important thing is to make it good and kind of know how to plan out where your value is in advance. Know your production value going in. So ultimately, it just comes down to rethinking a script. I've got a wonderful script about a witch in the woods. What do we do? Well, can we make it found footage and make the whole mythos come out through interviews and just have like three or four people? And it keeps the project going, but it shrinks it down to something that's workable. Effects are always a question. This isn't even just in low budget. This is, you know, goes all the way up to things like Mama, which are massive studio projects. The idea of which one is more cost-effective and which one looks better, digital or practical. So what do you guys think, digital or practical? Practical? So I tend to be on the practical camp as well, but you quickly discover that there are certain things that you have to make concessions on in micro-budgets. For instance, something as simple as a gunshot. A gunshot, just a a regular bullet punch through somebody, 
is so much cheaper to do digitally than it is to do practically on set. Because practically on set, you're destroying a costume. There's going to be blood splatter on the back wall. I now have to reset the black wall. You have to assume that the um, actress or actors, they're going to be completely messed up, so I have to reset that. Um, We've just fired off a squib, which according to my insurance and everything else, I have to have a pyrotechnics person on set for. Um, I have to have somebody who can actually, you know, function the squib, and this may cause my insurance to bump up a little bit. And so So that versus a digital effect, there's a vast amount of money difference there. But sometimes practical is cheaper, so it really just has to be handled on a case-by-case basis. Um, And then it's, you know, kind of figuring out other elements that make a script really expensive and how to parse them down and still keep production value. The golden goose of cinema for, I'd say, about the past 10 years is how to have one location and just a couple of actors and still make it good. Um, And that has really become kind of something that filmmakers seek out, that they look for, that they are constantly trying to find scripts that fit within this. Um, Unfriended did it well. Um, That entire thing was shot in one house in Eagle Rock, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, shot in one house where every bedroom of the house was made to look like a different person's bedroom. And so super self-contained, just a couple of actors. Paranormal Activity obviously did it. Primer did it. Um, So that's really become something that people are always looking for is the one location, couple of actors, really high concept idea. High concept, low budget. And it always comes down to rethinking necessities. Like, is the car scene necessary? Do we have to see the explosion? What can you do to parse things down? Do we have to see the aliens? How can we get hints that the aliens are there and still see something really badass without actually seeing the massive spectacle of it and still make audiences feel like they're getting something rewarding about it? And then it also comes down to, as an indie filmmaker, knowing what will sell and how to present it. So even, and I use the headless eyes here, because the headless eyes, this was one of my favorite movies of the 1980s, and I must have rented this, I guarantee, at least 20 times. I honestly can tell you nothing about this movie, but I loved this box cover so much that literally, like, I would rent it, and two months would pass, and I'd be like, oh, I loved that movie. I don't know if I love the movie. I think I just love the box cover, so I kept re-renting it over and over and over. And so this is a really good example of just selling something, of trying to find a really smart way to sell something. And you think, oh, selling something is somebody else's job. Not really, because you are now trying to convince distributors to pick up your movie, and you have to give them something enticing that they are going to say, oh, I can put that into Walmart, or I can get that into Redbox, or I know I can sell this. Globals are important. I know this will sell in Germany or Japan or wherever. You have to give them something really enticing. And so it's ultimately trying to figure out why would people see this movie? And this goes for all movies, even if it is the small movie where people talk through the entire thing and then at the end a monster shows up. How can you sell that to make it enticing for a distributor or an audience? Um, how would you market it? What aspects of it you know, can, can you kind of exploit to figure out what makes it something that people would want to see? So ultimately, we get into the make your own damn movie approach. Where do I find money? Even if you are doing the make your own damn movie and you're only looking for like 10 grand, where do I find money? And the answer to that is anywhere. Um, Anywhere you can. And uh, private investors, 
it's always a question of can you just approach people that you know and say, can I just have $1,000 and piecemealing it together like that. Crowdfunding always becomes a question. Crowdfunding is kind of a mixed bag in Hollywood now. There are certain films that I know have done crowdfunding and have done absolutely amazing, so much so that the industry takes notice and then they blow up even more. Starry Eyes started out as a crowdfunding. Um, Absentia, which was Mike Flanagan's first film, started out as a crowdfunding. And then when they get their goal, other people will come in and be like, hey, this looks good. Let's add some more money to it. Um, and then there's always the problem of what happens if you don't hit your goal. If you are asking for $50,000 and you don't hit it, it becomes an issue because then if you're then going to other people asking for money, it becomes like, a, well, you didn't even get 50K. Why am I going to invest in this? And so it's kind of a risky thing. I will also say running Kickstarters, has anyone in here done crowdfunding before? couple people, it's a shit ton of work, right? It is just as much work as making the actual movie um, to do it well and try to reach your goal. It is so much work. And so you have to be prepared to basically make this massive project before you ever even start on your project. It may be worth it in the long run. I usually recommend a combination, um, especially for my students who are just starting out. And I encourage all my students as they emerge from USC to have their big studio film that they could go pitch the next day to Universal and also have their micro-budget film that they are working on to shoot themselves because either or could happen, but be prepared for that micro-budget. And so with it, um, it's always about, you know, how can you do a combination? So, you know, get what you need to shoot it. If you can shoot it for 10 grand, awesome. Then kickstart post or however you can work it. A combination could work. So... The biggest rules of making projects independently at the micro-budget level. It is a lot of work. You are literally doing everything yourself. I catered parts of my first film. Um, literally, like, I would know that the crew is on the way and I'm dumping, like, high chews into the bowl and putting out bagels so that I can go figure out my shot list for the day. And every micro-budget filmmaker has tales like that. Tales from the trenches of, okay, well, then I needed this and I couldn't get it, so then I was at, like, 7-Eleven trying to figure out how I can make blood and things like that. Like, we've all been there. But sometimes this is the best or sometimes it's the only way. Um, the industry really likes a built-in following, and they like chutzpah. So being able to say, I said fuck it all and did this myself, speaks volumes for bigger projects. And so ultimately, it also gives you a lot more artistic freedom. It's one thing if you're coming straight into filmmaking and someone is handing you money and they get to control the shots. But if you have got it and it's your 10 grand and you can use it however the way you want to, it gives you a lot more artistic freedom. Ultimately, what you're doing, especially if you're doing it yourself, you have to fucking love that project because, as I mentioned, it's a lot of work and you are going to be living with it for years. AJ, how long does it take to make a movie? I'm talking script to seeing it on a screen. <laughs> two years. Two years, and I'd say that's, that's pretty quick. Yeah, I'd say two years, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty decent average. Um, I've seen them take even longer, which we will talk about momentarily, um, but two years. So we're going to say on average, whatever this is, not only are you now putting your own sweat, blood, and tears into it, but you have to live with it for two years from the moment that that script is done. This does not include writing the script. From the moment that script is done to like going to a festival to see it, 
two years is a good estimate. And so whatever it is, you have to fucking love it because passion equals enthusiasm equals work ethic. And at the end of the day, if you are not living, willing to die on this project, it may not be worth it. And then you need to kind of think about the script and come up with something that is worth it, something that will inflame your soul so much so that if you do not make it, your heart is going to explode. There is always a way, always a way. And even when I hear people say, I can never make a movie, sure you can. You could make one right fucking now in this theater. It may not be good, but you could make one. And so 10 grand, five grand, six grand, the world is full of stories of people who have done it. So there's no reason not to. And with that, I'm gonna clear all this contraption. I'm gonna bring up AJ Bowen, who is a veteran in low budget horror cinema um, and just an amazing actor and filmmaker and producer across the board. So come on up and join us, AJ. Let me clear all this. AJ Bowen, thank you so much for joining us here. You're welcome. Tell us about the movie that you are here with. Oh, Death December. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an anthology, and um, we're playing, I think, what they're calling Volume 1. So <clears throat> it's a holiday. It's set. There's one for every day in the month of December. Um, so that's a lot of filmmakers leading up to Christmas. Yeah. And um, I got involved with it because when I was doing Chelsea's movie, when I was doing Satanic Panic, mm -hmm. her assistant um, is a filmmaker named Sam Weinman. And we got along really, really well. And he called me and told me that he was directing one mm -hmm. and would I want to play an, you know, an abusive alcoholic father. And as a father, it just seemed awesome. So I said, yeah. <laughs> but, um, it, so there's, the, I'm in one of them, but there's a lot of, of up-and-coming filmmakers and people that have made um, features of their own. Sam just is in post right now. On, on the queer horror doc, oh, uh, which is going to be amazing. Um, yeah. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about um, kind of micro-budget cinema across the board. Like, you, you've you done um, many of these. Kind of, and, well, and based on, on that definition, I always thought that micro-budget was 50K. And so I was like, ah, I've only made 10 of those. But when it's, you know, if it's 300,000, mm -hmm. I've made, I've been doing this for 15 years now, and I've made, I think... I think like close to or right around 50 movies. And I would say that based on that litmus test, 95% yeah. uh, of them count as micro-budget. As a matter of fact, I can name the movies that aren't micro-budget, and they're still low-budget. The biggest movie that I ever worked on was Sacrament. Mm -hmm. And that was before Eli got paid, was a $4 million movie. Um, but we fabricated a world. None of that was there. Yeah. Um, your next was, I think, before reshoots, which are always kind of like built in uh, to a budget. I think we shot that with post um, before finishing. I want to say nine hundred k, and then yeah, like pretty much. I think that House of the Devil was close to that. But my stuff is skewed way more towards the things that you're describing. You know, like I made a movie that's it's the most recent one that came out that I was talking about before we started. Mm -hmm. Before we started, uh, it was a movie called I Trapped the Devil. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That movie is a $70,000 movie. And I think that that one, based on what you were talking about, is one of the most perfect examples of this sort of thing. It's, it's exactly one house. Um, and it when we got the script, um, when I was approached to do the movie, 
I noticed that it was just people basically walking up and down steps. So give me like the elevator pitch on that one of I Trap the Devil. Um, like I know it, but tell them. <laughs> so it's it's a Christmas movie, mm-hmm. and um, it's a guy alone, uh, a lonely guy, um, at Christmas in an empty house in disrepair because he lost his family, and uh, his brother and his brother's wife show up unannounced because they're worried about him, and unfortunately for them, he believes that he's trapped the devil in the basement of his house, like the literal devil, um, not figurative devil, um, but actually Satan in the root cellar of his home. And then hilarity ensues. So that is a perfect example of high concept, low budget. Like that's the golden goose model that I was talking about before is one location, three people, but a plot line you have not seen before and something that makes you say, holy shit. And that also gives you this amazing... Um, one of the things that the movie, um, that a lot of these movies do well is they will set up what we have always called a MacGuffin, but it's kind of the idea of this setup, this thing that you know that's coming at the end that eventually they're going to go into the basement. Um, and, and you know, that it's kind of setting this thing up. So yeah, talk a little bit about working on it. Like what were Um, some of the things that... Well, what I'd like, I'd like to, I can, I feel like I can really touch on a lot of the stuff that you're talking about with this specific example. <clears throat> but I kind of have to spoil certain elements of the movie. It's a pretty boring movie, so no big deal. <laughs> but if it's okay, if it's okay, I'd like to talk about some of the stuff. So um, spoilers are ahead like on the, I exa- the, the Devil. The very end of the movie is an example of a lot of what Rebecca was talking about. So the guy that wrote the movie had been trying for years to break into Hollywood, and I don't think that we even know what in the traditional sense means anymore. I think it means no. that your parents are super rich and then you can go out there and live on a trust fund and get like really tan and beautiful and, I don't know, take an acting class until someone decides that you should be on a CW show. Most of the people that I know who I consider to be like the working, the people trying to break into Hollywood, they work at FedEx while pushing scripts around yeah. Um, this, yeah. the town. Um, and that's kind of the people that, so, that's where breaking into Hollywood now is. So Josh, the writer and director of that movie, had no luck, and and it wasn't for his lack of trying because when CineFamily was open, it was this theater, this membership theater in Los Angeles that I was a member of, and I used to go to movies there all the time, and this kid hassled me. He hassled me so much that I told, he kept telling me, we're gonna make a movie, and, and that's not really how it works, I don't recommend doing that. But I finally had to get in his face and tell him, if you don't get out of my face, I'm gonna beat your ass, and also, I'm never gonna forget your face. I'll know who you are, I, I I'm never working with you. He I can't picture I you being like that. Just watch, just watch the signal. That's how I was with him. I was like Lewis Denton. Because um, he made <laughs> me have to be. So it didn't work out for him in L.A. And he decided, well, I'm going to go back to Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, it's a home base for him. And he already learned technically how to make a movie, which sounds like something that I, I, I don't think that you can possibly overstate. Yes. To do things that cost $50,000, you have to actually know how to... It would be really helpful if you knew how to technically make a movie. Yes. Um, you can't throw shit at it and just hope that it works out. And no one's going... There's not going to be much help in post-production. So your departments need to know what they're doing, and everybody needs to know how to do more than one job on the set. Yeah, it's all about finding people who can wear many hats and not people who are willing to try it. Um, like, don't give your dad the camera unless yeah, he's, like, so a like cinematographer. A, I've seen those movies. As a, as a quick uh, sidebar to that, 
I probably one of the main reasons that I have or whatever semblance of a career is because I ended up at the University of Georgia, which is not a film school. It's, it doesn't even have it. it just, it's a liberal arts program, but it does have a journalism school. And that J school is one of the best in the country. It hosts the Peabody Awards. I mention that because they have phenomenal equipment. But if you're not in the journalism school, they're not telling you what you can and can't do with it. So a lot of us in the theater program decided to not be journalism majors. Bruckner actually was in the J school oh, wow. at Georgia. So a group of us got together and we learned how to do everything on a movie. We all did. I mean, by default, I'm an actor now. But the first thing that I did was edit. And I directed. And I've been a writer since I was seven years old and just always writing. So all of us knew how to do, I knew how to run cable and do sound. We learned all of that in college. And then there ended up being focus points for us. And that group of people ended up making a movie called The Signal, kind of like 14 years ago. And we did it in nine days for $50,000. And the only reason that worked was because we all knew how to do every job. Mm -hmm. So in nine days, you know, I shot every day, but when I wasn't shooting, and also since none of us were in the unions, we're talking about 19-hour shoot days on that, to, which sucks. Yeah. Uh, I could do it at 27, but at 42, it's not happening at all. Um, but when I wasn't shooting, when it was one of the other actors or another segment, mm -hmm. I was hauling cable, I was running boom, um, I was going and fetching catering. And if you're going to make a movie with five people, it would be really helpful if there was this understanding that there, that this is this is what you're doing, you know. Like on on I Trapped the Devil. To get back to that one, I was a producer. On I came when I came on, I came on as a producer because when I read the script, I told him you're going to have some issues unless you have people that are pro level in Sheridan mm -hmm. that are because when you're talking about okay, you've got a one location house. And you've got, it's kind of a talkie, so it's a mood piece. There's not a bunch of stuff going on. It's just mostly, you know, atmospheric. You really need to have a visual element. So that needs to be striking. You need to, um, probably the, the most talented filmmaker that I've worked with is Ty West. Mm -hmm. And he spends a year after we've shot the movie on sound, just sound, a whole year working and tweaking the sound mix with Graham, with Graham Resnick, with his sound guy. And Ty spends so much care on the post-production elements, on picture color correction, sound, and that's before he gives the movie over to Jeff Grace to do the music. And those are huge components of Ty's movies. And I think that's why people that don't necessarily know how to make them will, they still, you still, you can still see it even to an untrained eye. You know that like Ty's movies, even if like some people find them boring, but they're not going to say that they're poorly made. They're yeah. incredibly technically proficient. And so I felt like I told Josh, um, I feel like you really need that for I Trap the Devil. You need something. You need the inside of the house, a couple of spots in the house to really pop. You need some, some cutaways. We talked about these things that you needed, and um, he didn't have anybody. Um, up in Wyoming that to act in it. And so when I came on, I offered to cast the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted me to originally play the other role in the film, the, the other brother than the one that I ended up playing. And I was like, no, nah, I've done that a bunch, but I know 
there's a guy I went to high school with, who I went to college with, who I was in the signal with, who's been my best friend since I was 13. And he's also the best actor I've ever worked with. We should put him in it. And then we should put my writing partner, Susan, who's from Wyoming in it, um, who's a phenomenal writer. Um, she wrote Smashed, the oh, movie nice. that Mary Elizabeth Winstead is in. Um, so we had the casting taken care of, and we had one location. And as we were shooting, um, this leads me to the other thing, uh, the, which is what I wanted to spoil a little bit. You're talking about work with what you've got. Yep. I would never write a script for something that I'd love to do. Like, that just, that's, at this, this point in the game, I would write something for, well, we can go shoot this this weekend. Yep. Um, because you don't have to have a lot of the stuff. I remember when I was in high school, I wrote... And when I was in when I was at Indiana University before I dropped out and ended up in Georgia, I wrote a Halloween spec script, you know, and I was, it was for me and I was going to be Loomis's nephew and, and nobody's going to fucking make that movie ever, especially not some freshman at Indiana University, you know. Oh, hi, Dimension, can I have? Can I make? I promise it'll be good. I'll try real hard. Um, Here's your twenty-five million. Yeah, yeah. So um, when we got up there, um, we brought in a camera guy from um, from LA who Josh knew really well. And I brought in my friend, another guy who went to college with us. We all kind of did everything, but my friend Ben Lovett uh, did the score for The Signal. He did the score. He's done a bunch of scores for a lot of things. Um, and he's just in my old roommate in college. And we brought him on to compose because when you've got like a quiet piece, like you were saying, um, and Ty does this really well, he'll pick like one song to clear. You, do, you can't get the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, but you might be able to get one song. Yep. So make it a centerpiece and use the shit out of it. That's what we did on your next. It just kept playing over and over and over again. It's a great song, though. Not anymore. <laughs> it's a little boring. But, um, so the other thing is you use what you've got, and sometimes when you start shooting, you don't know what you've got. As a matter of fact, I think that that's more times than not the norm. Um, I always say that, you know, usually by the time you're done shooting the movie, you're ready to go back and start shooting it. You've finally figured out how to do it and how to work together because lots of times, if you don't know each other, you're spending the two weeks, two and a half weeks that you have, 18 days I think is really common, uh, 18 days for a 70K yep. up to 300K. You're not going to get more than three weeks of six day a week shooting weeks with one day off at that price point. So you got to do it at 18. And trying to figure out how to communicate with someone in that pressure cooker, it usually takes about 18 days before you can start functioning, just, before you can start family. speaking in a shorthand, yeah. which is another thing that's helpful. Um, but where we were at was in Sheridan, Wyoming, and Josh knew the people that owned the house. One of the great things about going into a regional place like Sheridan um, is that you don't have to, one thing that gets cut real quick is the cost of permits, mm -hmm. because you don't need them. Um, which is really helpful. LA loves permits. I yeah, mean, that and, city and is from made a, for filmmaking. I'm from Atlanta originally. And yeah, Virginia. It used, mm -hmm. be, yeah. it used to be, like, when we shot The Signal, we went into the Georgia World Congress Center and asked them if it was cool. And they were like, fine. But that was before Tyler Perry and Marvel and Disney and Pinewood Studios. Like, now, when, like, I can't even pull my phone out at Hartsfield in Atlanta without them. So you have a permit for that? <laughs> you know, um, it, it changes really quickly. People get wise on that. The other thing that's great about regional film is that it's, it, seems, it seems cute for me to say this, but people are not cynical about how magic a fucking movie is. Mm -hmm. 
in those towns. They're just like you were when you fell in love with cinema and decided, I've got to make it, I just, I've got to absorb it. Those people still think it's cool. They're not jaded. And that creates a really good community energy that's really helpful because, for example, someone saw a shooting. Well, she happened to own a restaurant, and she came by with food one day. Didn't charge us. We didn't ask. Um, these are things that you start discovering. But the main thing that happened for probably the main reason I got my producer credit on I Trapped the Devil is because there was a house across the street that had a five-year-old girl that was super annoying. And she kept showing up to our adult movie and tap dancing on the porch. And because the director knew the whole town, it was a very small town, I couldn't tell this little girl to fuck off. Also, I was a new father of a little girl, and I was like, I can't tell a little girl to fuck off. I just can't do that. But can you get her the fuck out of here, please? Um, but she wouldn't leave. So we get to the end of that. That was actually a two-week shoot. That was, that was, yeah, that was a 12-day shoot uh, for us. So we get to day 11, and we have to shoot the end of the movie um, where I'm in a root cellar, and it's negative 11 degrees. Oh, my gosh. We shot in January and shared in Wyoming, which is basically Montana. So that was rad. Um, but there's a thing that happens at the end where a character walks out, and in the script, it's a male character with big boots, and you just see his feet sort of walk up the steps. You don't know. I'm saying that. I'm trying to not spoil the movie. It doesn't give a definitive answer one way or the other about the central thesis, which is another important thing to have mm -hmm. in these type of movies. You've got to have a question. And in my opinion, lots of times it's stronger if someone can make an argument either way. If it's a yes or no question, the things that I'm attracted to uh, as a viewer and as a writer are that we can both debate the shit out of each other and both be right and wrong. That's very much um, kind of something that rings true through a lot of these as we look at them, like resolution, yeah. what happened at the end. Um, they look like people. It, it's, it's a lot of it. Yeah. Um, Daniel Isn't Real is another one. That one skews a little bit higher, but that one definitely had kind of those same um, inklings so, of like, you know, questioning whether or not there's there. So what we, So we got to the point where we had to finally see who was in the cellar the behind the cellar door. And um, we, for whatever reason, they didn't have anybody. And they had been trying the whole shoot. And I'm like, how hard is it to shoot somebody's legs, get a pair of pants, get a pair of shoes, get them out of here. Um, but I've got to be on the ground. Um, actually, yeah, like two of us have to be on the ground. And he has to walk through. And it's kind of a messy situation. It's a tough shot to line up going up these steps. And that was going to be the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie in the script. And they're telling me we don't have anyone. They're talking about getting the sound guy. And I'm like, that's not going to work because he's got to hold the boom and he can't be walking. And they're talking about having the cam up. But I'm like, well, no. And we also need focus pull because we're starting over here and then running catty corner. And then there's this other depth here. And then there's this other level here. And then there's stairs here, lighting here and here. So we have to be able to full pull focus. So everybody's doing their job. We need an extra person. And that girl came in tap dancing. And I asked her where her parents were. And she said, they're across the street in my house. I walked out the door, walked across the street, knocked on the door. I told them who I was, told them what we were doing, uh, explained that this was a movie of trying to answer a question of whether or not the devil is real in Sheridan, Wyoming, um, set in the 80s. And um, would it be 
your daughter's been over here. She seems to really want to be in a movie. Can I put her in it? She won't be in any peril. She won't see anything that she shouldn't be seeing. Um, and I walked her parents through it. And then I talked to the director, Josh, and was like, I really think that we should do this. And so we lined up a shot. And we got her in. So basically what ends up happening is instead of having this pretty boring, like you expected a voice, there's a strong male voice behind that door the whole movie. And what ended up happening is, well, that didn't work out. But we did have a little girl that desperately wanted to be in the movie. And I thought, well, it would be really fucking creepy if when that door opens, what if a little girl, what if, because you never see the actual person, like what if you just see little girl's legs like dancing through the scene and then up the steps and then I'll line up a shot because through the front door of the house, if we rack focus, you can see this actual girl's house and it's supposed to be Christmas morning at this point. And so I was like, we can line up a shot where she runs and sort of dances in front of the camera like she's been doing the whole shoot. She'll go down this long hallway down our front door. She'll walk out the door. I, I cam opt this shot and to line it up and we'll have her go down our steps, run across the street in the snow, walk up her own steps. And if we line it up at this angle, we'll watch her knock on her own door and go inside. And that makes it, it gives a, it gives us this, this thing where it, it, is it Satan? Is this a shapeshifter? And it, how fucking creepy is it that this little girl runs past a bunch of dead people and then goes across the street and into her own house. So we didn't even have to clear that location. Mm -hmm. And that was all just because we lost an actor and we didn't have, and we had a really annoying girl on set, little girl. And it ch changed the tone of the entire movie on a rewatchability sort of thing. And that you only get if you're really present and with what you're, with what you're doing and you, you have the general idea of what you're trying to do. And then these serendipity moments, these happy accidents, you're, if you're prepared to go with them, then you end up getting things, you know. We always use till it's done to death, all of us know the reason that we didn't see the shark in Jaws is because the shark sucked. But that movie wouldn't be scary if we saw the shark the whole mm -hmm. time. Um, and that is, again, another thing that I don't think can be overstated. Those sorts of things, I love these budget points because they force you to be um, creative and they force you to problem solve these algorithmic problems in a creative way because you can't throw money at it. And that's something that I think we forget about in cinema now a lot of the time, especially on bigger budget stuff that, um, and Hitchcock was, he has a beautiful quote about how it's, um, it's not the bullet firing that scares us, it's waiting for the bullet to fire. And if you think about it, like when you're at the dentist office, or maybe this is just me because I'm really scared of dentists, um, but it is far worse for me to be sitting in that waiting room waiting for them to call my name than when I'm actually back there in the chair and am suddenly numb and like, oh yeah, I don't feel anything. Okay, this isn't so bad, but sitting out in that waiting room is fucking terrifying. And so um, being at this budget level, that's what I think a lot of filmmakers are forced to do is you have to set up that bullet that we're waiting to fire. What the fuck's in the basement? What's the thing that seems to be switching time around? Um, and it, it definitely works and, and really kind of pushes um, the boundaries and, and really kind of makes for better films in that regard. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, so I would love to hear um, a little bit about what you have coming up. Yeah, sorry I talked so much. No, um, you did exactly what you're here for. Yeah, I ran my fucking mouth. Um, <laughs> I, um, well, I Trapped the Devil came out. Um, I did a movie um, a few years back. Actually, Bria is going to be here tomorrow, but I did a movie 
with uh, Bria Grant. Uh, Apple cart. Yeah, I think it's called, it's called, they ended up changing it. IFC changed the name to like Dead Night. That's a fun element as well. That sucks. Um, that's, that's probably my least favorite thing about February that. for life, Black Coat's daughter. So, so yeah. Well, that happened with us on the signal. We had already had our trailer. We already had our posters. We took that shit to Sundance. It got distribution. And then they were like, by the way, we're going to cut a trailer. We're going to cut a new poster. And we're going to charge you for both of those things. The companies that are going to do those things for us, we own. So we're getting paid twice for shit that you already had, and we already had an invested interest in what we, how we wanted to sell it, what we wanted the posters to look like. What was the original title? It was originally called The Signal, but the trailers were way different. And the, the movie is not a focus on a love story, but they decided to create this weird evanescence mm-hmm. kind of poster with like t- the two lovers in the movie, and then pe- somebody's holding a goddamn hockey stick in the back. And I don't know what mm-hmm. that's about. So... But we got charged $200,000 for it. That was tight. Yeah, that happens after Um, the sale. Even like um, you guys are seeing After Midnight here started as something else, I think it was. um, Yeah. yeah. What was this? Something else. Yeah, literally something else. Something else, yeah. And I read that script. Yeah. um, I read that script when I was going around trying to get Jeremy a physical distribution deal. Mm -hmm. Because that's another thing if you're making a movie. Do not sell one over the... There's basically going to be two things that you are trying to sell physical media, which is not a good deal anymore, and digital rights. And they'll grab these green filmmakers, these young filmmakers, and all you want to do is have at least one, you just want one more person to see your movie. Just one, maybe five. It's true. And, and this company offered to take Jeremy's digital rights. So when I saw the battery, I saw it the day it came out on iTunes. I just was scrolling through and saw a trailer. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And I watched it, and I was blown away by the technical filmmaking and the ability to... That, that movie wouldn't be that movie if it cost $7,000. He wrote a movie for six... He wrote a $6,000 movie knowing that he could make it look like a $250,000 movie and hit that really sweet spot. And so I started stalking him. And I, was, I thought I was blown away by the movie, and that's how we met. Mm-hmm. And um, I found out pretty quickly that he had, he had digital distribution but not physical media. And he really wanted to get physical media. But no physical media company is going to do that without the digital rights because they're not going to make any money off of it. So I marched, Rob and I. Yeah, to Scream Factory. We, we marched into Scream Factory with like a burned copy that I got Jeremy to send me. And I was like, laid all of my whole career on. I was like, you've got to put this movie out. Please, please, please. And they liked it. And that worked for him. Mm-hmm. And, but, but when you're talking about how long it takes to get a movie made earlier... I read the script for something else during that process, and that was before Darby was born. So that was like my daughter. So it's like six years ago. Yeah. So six years ago, I read the script for something else, which is a movie that's playing here tonight. And I hooked him up with like three different filmmakers, like Larry. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time that Larry was trying to get it produced. And it's a very difficult job to try to get financing for your movie if you can't figure out how to self-finance. Um, but to Bria, who's in that movie, uh, we did Dead Night... Uh, a few years ago, and I got along really well with the filmmaker, Brad, um, who does all of like Marvel's EPK stuff and mm-hmm. does all of Disney's stuff. He's a really great filmmaker. He produced John Dies at the End, um, a movie I love. and I love that one, too. And I love Don, and Don and I are close friends. And so Don agreed to produce Dead Night. But Brad and I sort of, and this is the other thing that I would say before we go about the, one of the, the biggest pieces of advice that I could give about making a movie is make them with people that you know really well, that you trust, that you love, 
that will not that will call you out on your bullshit yeah, because yeah. you can really get honest and you really need to be able to be honest in an, in a loving way to be able to get something made at this price point and um and that's how I felt with Brad and I how I felt with our editor Megan Leon and she wrote this script for me and she knew we thought okay well we can we can pay we can pay out of our own pockets 100k we can make a 100k movie what can we do and so Megan wrote the script in two weeks, and then it was written for me and for the girl who played my daughter in Dead Night. Mm -hmm. um, and we shot it in and around L.A. And like you were saying before about pick your things, we had a couple of set pieces that we built. Everything else was a run and gun. Yep. You know, like with Night Sky, all that was all run and gun. Like we drove between Los Angeles and Monument Valley and back and hit Grand Canyon. And we would sometimes sneak into national parks after hours and be prepared to be arrested. That, don't but... do that. That's not <laughs> how you make a movie. That's, that movie doesn't have distribution. So I mean, you know, it's really how you don't make it. But yeah, Brad and, and Megan and I got together and made that. Um, and I'm getting ready to do a movie with the Soapbox guys. Oh, nice. Um, because I grew up with them too. They they went to high school. We all went to high school together, so it's a different area. And um, yeah, other than that, raising a kid. No doubt. Me too. Yeah. Um, but I think that something that you mentioned is a really good lesson to kind of end on for micro-budget filmmaking is pick your, your um, battalion very carefully. And it really is like going into war. Like, who would you go to war with? Again, two years you're going to spend with these people. Even if you are only on set for 18, you are still living with them and everything that happened for years. I have to abridge my answer on that because I thought you were talking about, like, from the time you start shooting. Yeah. Until it comes out. No. Like, like from script, like shopping it around and everything? Three. To yeah. get it out. If you're more. talking about to get it out, I thought mm -hmm. you were talking about, like, get, premiering it at a fest. On average... Once your script's done and you have money, it'll, somebody else might see it in three years. Yeah. If you're lucky. It's you're a the, long like the, time. And so really pick your your kind of your comrades very wisely. And don't wait. You don't need money. Oh, my God, don't Just wait. Just go make a movie. That's the biggest lesson of the day is don't wait. Anybody can come up with 5K. I mean, I don't care if you're driving Lyft it's, on your off nights after your kids go to bed. You it's can way it. more stressful to live with not doing the fucking thing. Mm -hmm. I promise you, then dealing with the headache of getting it out and dealing with the bruises to your ego, you know, kill the ego, make that shit. Yeah. Finding the money is, is so much less than having to live with not doing it. Um, so on that, thank you guys for coming. AJ and I expect to come back here in three years and see films from all of you. Thank you guys so much. Um, I am Rebecca McKendry. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Nightmare University. Thank you guys so much. And please, tomorrow at 1 p.m., you can see my other podcast, Shockwaves, um, which we're doing here as well. And we will be discussing our favorite body horrors that aren't Cronenberg. Because um, we figured if we're doing body horrors, like we she told me to come by and talk about body horrors, we didn't say shit about it. Not well, that's just Elric and I always have to like set because we were like, if we do our top five body horrors, it's immediately just going to be a list of every Cronenberg film. So then we were like, let's make it hard. Let's go not Cronenberg. So yeah. Um, so please join us here tomorrow at one o'clock for that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Panic Fest. Um, and please find us online, Nightmare University. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you for the barbecue.
University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Moynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.